This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. Interest rate markets continue to dominate thinking in financial markets right now, with the effects of rising long-term U.S. bond yields and rising yields elsewhere, for that matter, really striking some fear into institutional investors that we track in our behavioral metrics, as well as dampening sentiment more generally. One only need look at the recent weakness in equity markets for an example of that. And there's so much to talk about when it comes to rate markets. You not only have to think about Fed policy, but we're also now having to ask questions about deficit spending in the U.S. That, of course, has been a big driver of inflation. The Fed has been trying to be very responsive to inflation over the last 18 months or so. But we're now at a point where policy maybe is heading for a bit of stasis, but these questions about debt and deficits remain. Thankfully, this week, we have one of our resident interest rate market experts on to talk about all of these things. Marvin Lowe is a senior strategist on the team in Boston. Marv, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Marv, there is so much to talk about. We have the issue of debts and deficits and rising long-end yields. But actually, we also have a Federal Reserve meeting coming up just a week from now. And it does feel like this is something of a dead issue insofar as the Fed have indicated they're not really going to do anything upcoming. There's nothing priced. Do you think, though, they are done with this cycle completely? Is the door now closed on rate hikes? It's amazing that we live in in six-week cycles, isn't it? Um, Personally, I think that they're concerned enough about the impact that the long end of the curve is having on the economy that they um, will likely be done with the cycle. Um, they won't be saying that they're done with the cycle. I really haven't thought that the, it was the, the terminal view or the short end that um, was really causing the market angst. Um, yeah. It's really kind of the uncertainty around how the second part or you know, let's say the, the later innings of this cycle evolves from both um, being able to reach their uh, inflation targets and or you know potentially higher R star and terminal uh, values associated with uh, the uncertainty that the economy and and rates are are providing for the market right now. It's an interesting contrast to what you have with the ECB right now. Notwithstanding, you have one or two ECB hawks. I think Holtzman from Austria is still giving a message that's very similar to the Fed, as in. Rates will stay higher for longer. We may not be done, but everybody else really, I think, is talking in terms of we've probably done enough, at least done enough for now. Where the Fed last week, you had, I think it was 14 different Fed speakers, almost all of whom were voters, (laughs) kind of saying the same thing, which is that, yeah, we're probably close to done, but we can't say we're done. Kind of what you just said. They can't say they're done. What do you think it would take to tip them over more towards the tone that's coming from the ECB, which is, yeah, we're basically done. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the ECB, um, you know, I won't say um, has an advantage um, because you know certainly there there are a whole bunch of issues with the um, eurozone economy. Yeah, but they do have a more clear transmission message, um, whereas these higher yields are making their way into both the business part of the economy as well as the consumer part of the economy. Mm. What the Fed doesn't have is any clarity 
that the consumer is slowing down at all. Um, and if anything, we'll get, you know, we'll have GDP. That number is well above what anyone expected for the, um, for the third quarter. And, and they just really don't have the ability to say that rates are at a level that are going to elicit the kind of, you know, economic slowdown that we're seeing um, across a lot of the rest of the G10. And yeah, I mean, you talked about GDP. This episode, I think, is going to come out the morning that U.S. GDP is released for the third quarter. Annualized, we're looking at the consensus is 4.5%. That's re-accelerating from 2.1%. So clearly, we may have an issue insofar as, as you've mentioned, the U.S. economy is running still quite hot. Maybe things like exports and higher energy prices are goosing this up a little bit. But nevertheless, we have to think about this divergence between the U.S. economy and elsewhere. But then at the same time, as you alluded to before, the Fed is talking about tighter monetary conditions feeding into tighter financial conditions, potentially. And last week, we hit 8% mortgage rates in the U.S. on new origination mortgages. You have equity markets that are starting to crack a little bit. You have a stronger dollar. So financial conditions are clearly on their mind. How far do you think that takes the tightness of monetary conditions? In other words, what is the equivalent Fed hike that the tightening in financial conditions that we've seen in recent weeks, what do you think that equates to? Is it an extra 25, 50, 100 basis points? It's probably 25 to 50. And it, there is a lag associated with also, which which is uh, which is a challenge, you know, given that we're you know waiting for these long and variable lags to make their way into the economy. And as the third quarter GDP prints, you know, it's clear that it's longer than than, than we had thought originally. Remember, we started the year with practically everyone expected expecting a recession by the end of this year, and sure enough, we're going to print one of the strongest GDP numbers that that we've seen in kind of normalized time periods. It will equate to a rate hike, you know, I would say probably 25 to 50 basis points. When that actually pulls data down to a more sustainable level from an inflation perspective is probably some, you know, we're going into the second quarter, the third quarter of next year before we have a real good sense of um, of where that is. And then, you know, ultimately that feeds into this higher for longer kind of message. And, and remember the, the balance sheet reduction process is operating the background. So that's further tightening things, even if they're, they're not hiking rates actively during this period. That was, that's actually where I wanted to finish the thought. I actually didn't want to spend too much time on the Fed, but I think it is important. And I think that QT element, the runoff of the balance sheet, the maturity of bonds that they purchased during the quantitative easing period, as you say, it's running in the background. Actually, last week, I think it was Chris Waller talking about the total extent that you might see the balance sheet run down, which I think in simplified terms, he was looking at it potentially to be up to 30% of the peak balance sheet value, two to two and a half trillion dollars worth might come off. The implication is that QT, this runoff of the balance sheet, might then run on his numbers, using his numbers, might run for another, say, 18 months, potentially two years. And the Fed themselves are talking about cutting rates in that time in their own projections. Do you think that's a realistic outcome that QT just keeps on going, even if policy is static or even on rates moving towards easing? Personally, I don't think it's possible for you to be um, running QT while you're cutting rates. Um, you know, I think that uh, this economy is too big and there, there's just too many mixed signals that would come out of that. Mm. Having said that, 
I think that QT and the slowness of that uh, transmission channel of the balance sheet into the banking system is one of the reasons that the U.S. economy is as strong as it is. So bear with me. The Fed balance sheet has uh, been reduced some, you know, close to about a trillion dollars. Bank excess reserves are down only about 150 billion during that period. So we already are seeing uh, deposit strains. You know, we hear that from a lot of banks, and certainly that was um, behind. Uh, the stresses in the banking system earlier this year. But at the same time, what we're seeing is that loan growth is still increasing, particularly around the credit card side of things. The challenge is that the transmission of this QT is not making its way into the banking system, not making its way into the lending uh, environment, and probably most importantly, not making its way into um, slowing consumer spending, given that this is a consumer-driven outperformance of the U.S. economy. So board member Waller is looking at this and and really trying to get a sense of how much longer we can get this down so that the transmission mechanism starts to work, because that's the only way we're going to get inflation back towards this more sustainable 2% level, is to take those that excess liquidity that seems to be quite fluid and making its way into the consumer economy kind of off the table. And they're nowhere near being able to see that happening yet. Yeah. Yeah. I want to shift now to fiscal policy. It's starting to get talked about a lot more, but I feel as though we focused so much on the Fed the last 12, 18 months. And for good reason, of course, they're the most important Mm -hmm. central bank of the largest economy in the world. But Fiscal policy really is one of the major reasons why we are here where we are, which is still talking about inflation coming down very, very slowly. You have pent up household savings from the pandemic that you've talked about, that Lee's talked about, certainly that has prolonged the consumer led recovery in the US. That's all down to fiscal policy. And we're now thinking about debt levels. And look, going back to the early 80s, I remember books on my parents' bookshelf about the fiscal unsustainability of the Reagan era deficits. (laughs) So, you know, we're going back nearly, what, 40 years here where people have been worried about deficits and debt levels. And we've been through this with the Eurozone, of course, now very different circumstances when it came to the Eurozone fiscal crisis. But you have rising yield levels predicated, I think, in part at least, on the notion that the projections for fiscal policy, certainly this year, but even next year, are for enormous issuance that needs to be digested. Thankfully, our own flows show that institutional investors are, are picking up the slack here. They really probably are the last buyers. But is there a yield level that you get to in, let's say, 10-year equivalents in the U.S. Treasury market or in other bond markets as well that you really worry about as not that there's necessarily a line in the sand, But is there a point at which yield levels just get too much for debt markets and you start to see maybe something like what we saw in the UK last year with the mini budget crisis? I'm not in the camp that um, the US, particularly the US Treasury market, is one where you would get a failed auction, Um, which was really the concern that we were seeing in the gilts market. An unorderly increase of 500 basis points or something like that, you know, is, is, is pointing to a broken market with potential liquidity issues um, that, you know, certainly would need uh, some degree of intervention. But, but I think you're talking about kind of moves in that magnitude to, to really create this kind of long-term unsustainability and, and really broken market functioning type of concerns. 
I think that as we take this deficit funding question and then kind of pull that thread, it really is a function of the inability of Washington to 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 get um, its spending under control. But you know, again, that's not new news. It's been going on, like you said, for decades. Based on the CBO budgets, which came out earlier this year, you know, we, we knew the numbers were somewhere between five and six percent of GDP, which is frightening to think about. But that in itself is not new news. It's when that number potentially meets higher interest rates for longer or forever, and yeah. just how big a component that interest cost starts to weigh on the economy. So again, just using CBO budgets, about 50% of the deficit is driven by that interest payment. Now, baseline increases somewhere to about 60%. And you, you get to those numbers uh, when you assume that 10-year yields are somewhere around 3 to 4, 4.1% or so. Clearly, we're, we're above that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really a function of what your view is kind of going forward. If we say higher for longer, we're going to wind up with kind of this shock to that interest rate assumption. But if it starts to settle back down towards that 4% um, level, which you know isn't unrealistic, but certainly right now seems like it's, it, it's a reach, you wind up with a short-term shock but less unsustainable kind of environment uh, from from years five to 10. It's when you actually increase that number up 100 100 basis points. So, you know, take the 4% and say the 10 year stays at 5%. Then you get an interest component number, which gets to be gets to be about 75 to 80% of the budget, uh, of the deficit. And that deficit itself kind of goes from a 5 to 6% of GDP number towards 8%. And this is like, this is um, some modeling that we wound up doing. It gets kind of scary, and it certainly takes a great deal of time before you could dig out of that hole, if you if you can at all. Doesn't mean doesn't mean uh, we're going to have failed auctions, but it really does mean that the whole crowding out of the investment landscape uh, becomes much more front and center uh, than we've seen even now. Even though rates are rising, um, even though we've got uh, some of the more weaker auctions, you know, uh, risk assets are still kind of holding up. But you take out. The liquidity that's in the system, and you put this unsustainability uh, within this discussion, and things get challenging soon. This is just a brief interruption to let you know that our European Research Conference is now less than a month away on Tuesday, November 7th, and we'd love to see you there. This year, we're doing something different in running the event across three different locations in London, Frankfurt, and Milan with live speakers in each venue, as well as streamed content from our main stage speakers across all three locations. As usual, we'll be bringing you thought-provoking ideas, looking at current trends in markets and leveraging our award-winning research on investor behavior, inflation, media sentiment, and quantitative finance. I'll be in Frankfurt myself for the day, and it'd be great to meet you there. Who knows? Maybe we'll even have a prize on hand for anyone who comes to the event thanks to hearing about it on Street Signals. For more information and to book your spot, please contact your State Street representative. Now, back to the podcast. I mean, it all feels of a piece with everything we've talked about so far in terms of tighter financial conditions, the Fed wanting to wait to see how that feeds through and those long and variable lags and and that potentially slowing down the lending market, which you mentioned is starting to pick back up again. It has to do with the impact on the consumer that financial conditions via housing potentially do. Now, we've, we've talked a lot about the fixed rate nature of the, the U.S. mortgage market. You mentioned Europe being far more rate sensitive and being more floating rate. 
But then the, the financial conditions can impact the consumer and then can potentially slow things down sufficiently. What's your assessment of the time scale over which that takes place and where you might finally get some relief from 5% yields and they move back down towards 4%? It's either a more clear signal that we're at um, the point where these long and variable lags are much shorter and we're, in, we're starting to see a slowdown in, in the employment market. For better or for worse, um, the Fed probably wouldn't be that upset with a, with a negative uh, non-farm print. You know, I think mm. it's something like that that gets you there. The challenge is that there's no signs of that. If anything, um, the reacceleration in the GDP expectations is translating into some reacceleration in, in the jobs market of uh, last month. You know, one data point doesn't make a, a trend, but you know, certainly we're not seeing any of that support uh, in terms of the parts of the economy that that the Fed really is looking at. You know, uh, services, inflation, ultimately um, overall employment. And then bringing it back to the debt question. I mean, we're we're recording this in the midst of the U.S. House of Representatives grappling their way to trying to find leadership. So effectively, we have no legislative body, or at least half the legislative body is tying its own hands behind its back. This, of course, plays into fiscal policy and its implications. We have a potential government shutdown coming up. I think it's a few weeks away now. We avoided one in September. We're coming up to one potentially in the middle of November. That's, of course, very important. Last week, we talked with Elliot Entoff about the funding that is ideally going to be going in the U.S.'s perspective, ideally going to be going to fund and defense aid to Ukraine, defense aid to Israel, potentially defense aid to Taiwan. How much power at this point does Congress have to, to restrain spending? Is there a limit to the fiscal largesse? I mean, again, this is something we've talked about for decades, but it does feel like it's coming to a head at one of the peak periods of U.S. political dysfunction. How does that trajectory change in your view, or does it change? It's one of the things that seems easier to say that these large deficits are going to continue given how um, this Congress and, and Washington overall is aligned. Your observation of um, you know talking about kind of these deficits going back to the Reagan era reminded me of something um, around monetary policy and fiscal policy. So you know everyone points back to what Volcker you know was willing to do with regard to the economy and constructing a hard landing. Um, we've got a Fed now that is really trying to tiptoe around that. But the other part of you know what was successful back in kind of the the eighties, um, late eighties, going into the nineties, was that you had fiscal restraint. Also, there was an agreement between uh, the Fed and the administration. You know, back then it was mm -hmm. the, the Clinton years to try to rein in the fiscal so that the monetary could work its way through the economy. The Fed, if it finds that it needs to hype because you know none of the parts of the economy it needs to see slow down. Um, is actually slowing down. We've got various parts of this economy that are hurting. Um, mm. and, and I think that you do create a recession and potentially a hard recession by pushing really hard, which is ultimately the concern um, and why they're taking this kind of gingerly approach to it. But then there's a fiscal response to that, right? Um, then we wind up getting um, all the shock absorbers coming back in the economy and fiscal fiscal spending and, and the, you know, the deficit is going from 5 to 6% now um, you know, typically they can increase by 500 basis points during a recession. Mm. And then you wind up with, a, a, you know, even more problems kind of going forward, particularly 
with debt markets that are challenged right now. So, you know, it, it's a tough uh, circle to, to square within, within all of these different pieces, which, you know, the potential strategy might be not for the Fed to tighten rates to the point where recession risk starts to increase, just so that they could pull liquidity down and right-size things so that the transmission mechanism could slow. But, you know, that does mean that we're in for another year, if not longer, of this kind of uncertainty around how all of, uh, all of these chips settle once, once we're kind of done with it. So just to finish out then, thinking about long rates, the, the, the treasury curve, we're recording this on Monday, the 23rd of October. The front end, as you say, probably looks close to pegged. Maybe nothing more for the Fed to do. Two-year yields are at 509. 10-year yields actually earlier today touched 5% before we were recording. They're now back down to 487. We've had a massive rally. That leaves twos, tens at, what is that? About 22 basis points, minus 22 basis mm -hmm. points. It's a heavy, heavy disinversion. Couple months ahead, end of the year, say, where do you see the shape of the curve and 10-year yields in particular? It, it's hard for me to see a reason to rally rates um, at this point, unless we're able to answer some of these you know, burning questions around uh, the slowing of the economy and, and whether or not we get an inflation uh, path that, that kind of fits the Fed's target. You know, one of the things that's been interesting about the rise in yields um, over the course of the last week, you know, this is the world that we're living in where we're looking at kind of these weekly rate moves is that um, the inflation component has started to increase again. So, you know, that's that's making its way back in. I think that we get back to neutral on twos, tens. And I think it's I think it's a bare uh, steepener that that ultimately drives it. So, you know, that would push uh, 10 year yields, you know, maybe another 25 basis points higher. And, and I think that's kind of the risk, um, the risk that we're looking at right now. And that puts the Fed even further on the sidelines, because if they're worried about the slowing of the economy, that's going to play into to their deliberations. But we'll have to see just how much of an impact it has on that inflation and on that, you know, that employment slash consumer part of the equation, which, which uh, remains, you know, quite opaque at the moment. Marv, as we were recording this, or just before, actually, Bill Ackman was on the tape saying he's covered his short. As we were recording this, like five hmm. minutes ago, Bill Gross is starting to receive rates in the, the belly of the curve. You're going against him. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll talk in six weeks and find out how, um, how that worked. <laughs> Let's see who is right. Gross and Ackman or Lowe? Well, Marv, <laughs> it's been, as always, a pleasure to chat to you. Always good to get your insight. We will certainly catch up with you before too long. And by the end of this year, we, we certainly will have an idea of whether we get back to a flat yield curve or not. But we'll just have to wait and see. Thanks so much for your time, though, Marv. Really great to chat. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. 
It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.